So trolling, predator trolling, um, it's correlated with what they call the dark tetrad of personality traits. So it's Machiavellianism, narcissism, psychopathy and sadism. But sadism is the strongest link, which is really interesting because what it means is they are setting out to hurt you and they take pleasure from it. G'day and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. Ginger Gorman is an engaged and thoughtful writer about social issues. She has worked for ABC Local Radio, ABC Emergency, Triple J, Radio Netherlands Worldwide, and Fairfax Community Newspapers. As a fellow Canberran, we've known each other for a decade, and she's always struck me as a congenital optimist. Which made it all the more surprising when Ginger Gorman suddenly became one of Australia's leading experts in online trolling, taking her microphone into the sewers to understand what makes people savagely attack strangers online. Ginger, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's start with where your terrific book starts. Tell us the story of how you reported on Peter Trong and Mark Newton back in 2010. Andrew, I've always been interested in social justice, as you say, and in human rights. So I'm always asking these questions, how do we treat each other and how can society be fairer? And that's exactly what I did when I got sent to Cairns with the ABC to host ABC Far North's Drive program. And I noticed in that community that people in the LGP, people in the LGBTI plus community there were just having such a hard time. And so I set out to tell their stories really and this wasn't hard news. This was stories about their lives and how they were being treated. So they were really a series of features. And one of those feature stories I did both on the radio and online was about this gay couple, Mark Newton and Peter Truong. And I went to their home, I interviewed them. And the story was that they had longed to be fathers and they'd had this beautiful little boy via surrogacy in Russia. Now that story went to air on a number of ABC stations. It was put online. And then a few years later, so in 2013, I had moved back to Canberra. I was on maternity leave with my second child and those two men were arrested and charged in the United States as members of a global paedophile ring. And it turned out that that little boy that I had spent so much time with, he had been horrendously abused by them from the time he was two weeks old and shared around with other paedophiles. And he wasn't actually their biological child at all. They had purchased him from his Russian mother for $8,000. And so that was just so hard to come to terms with and I don't think I really ever will in terms of I spent a lot of time with that little boy and they had been damaging and hurting him so much and I still wonder, you know, what his life will turn out like. But 
That part of the story I'll just leave to the side for a second. What happened to me personally was that conservatives in the US got hold of this, particularly one man who was a quite prominent journalist and blogger and he literally had thousands of followers. So he then was inciting his followers to shame me and sort of suggesting that it was my fault that this child had been abused, that I had some part to play, that I should have known and so forth. And so I just became the target of an international online hate campaign and my family as well. And so the terror of that was quite pure. I've never experienced anything like it and I hope I never do again. What what Um, did they do? Well, the two... Things that I remember most, I mean, there was so much hatred, it's hard to describe the volume, but there were just two moments that sort of stuck in my head, which is the first one was we got this death threat that said your life is over and my tweets were geolocated. I'm not actually very techie, so we were required to be online as part of our ABC jobs. I was, I had a Twitter account Um, and underneath any tweets you could basically click there and pinpoint our house on Google Maps if I had sent the tweet from our house. So people could really easily find where we lived and at around the same time my husband who I've since separated from he found a picture of our family on a fascist website. So my mother's parents are Holocaust survivors. A number of my family members died in the Holocaust. And the threats and things underneath this photo were quite terrifying in conjunction with that and the death threat. And I tried to get help from my employer, the ABC at the time. They were absolutely clueless. They told me to ring the employee assistance scheme And I was thinking, you know, I don't need a psychologist. Like, I need to know if someone's going to kill my children. And the police were equally as hopeless. They said, stay off the internet, love, which is the classic thing that happens. The victim kind of get blamed and the victim has to change their behaviour. So I just realised that no one could actually tell me what was the level of the threat. Like, was someone actually going to come and kill me? Am I in real danger or is this just on the internet. And how fast did it happen? Oh, it happened so fast after the arrest and charge. And I mean, I still get those tweets today sometimes. I still will get those threats today. Although now I know so much more about it, so it doesn't have the same effect on me. But I guess what started to happen, Andrew, after a while was I could see especially prominent women, so women in politics, women in sport, female journalists, here and in the States I was reading news stories about extreme cyber hate against them that was making their whole lives unravel. People like Tracy Spicer afraid to go home, losing their jobs, extreme credible threats of violence. And so I started asking like, About 18 months later, once the fear died down a bit, I was like, who are these guys? What do they want? Why would you send someone you don't know a death threat? But I didn't know what I was getting into. I really was so naive when I think about it now. It makes me shudder. I did not understand that they were operating in big international syndicates and they could actually get you killed. So you made a decision which which is sort of surprising on the face of it uh, to actually 
delve further into uh, into the perpetrators and uh, and to write a book uh, called uh, Troll Hunting, which came out in 2019. Um, what, what turned you into a troll hunter? Well, you know what? I actually wrote back to the two publishers originally. I had the email ready to go to say, I'm sorry, I can't write this book. This has just been too damaging. The chain of events was I became a freelancer at the end of 2015. I left the ABC and one of the big investigations I did was for Fairfax and I wrote these four stories about extreme trolling and they went completely viral because one of the stories contained a video of myself interviewing this extreme predator troll Mark who does get people killed. He's a very scary guy. He should be in prison and he's not. And... Because people were suddenly started to realise like this is so extreme and this was compelling stuff that we'd never heard before, then two publishers offered for me to write a book. And I actually sat down and wrote the email saying, I'm so sorry, I can't. Like, but the thing that made me go back to it was that after that Fairfax series, dozens and dozens of people wrote to me saying I'm a cyber hate target I can't get help I've tried to suicide I've lost my job I've had to move house like these harms were going on and on and on and on so I dumped them all into a folder because I almost couldn't cope with them and I read through all of them and I just had this really strong sense like god somebody's got to do something nobody's doing anything nobody even knows where to get help and they can't get help that was one thing they said over and over again all these people I can't get help I can't get help so that was really the impetus to write back and say okay let's go but I you know I didn't understand really even then even though I'd been talking to trolls for a couple of years I still didn't understand what I was getting into so tell us about Mark I first met Mark because I just put a call out when I was doing a story for news.com.au and I wanted to talk to committed trolls and, you know, I mean, I shudder thinking about it now. Like I said, I just went to a cafe with my recorder to meet him. I didn't understand how dangerous he was. So he is a real psychopathic troll. He works uh, in a syndicate and he started trolling when he was 14 and he used to troll at that time RIP Facebook pages, so memorial pages for people. And the example that he gave me at one point was uh, he would troll the page of a girl who died by suicide and she'd been hit by a train and he'd call her um, a train hugger and say he was glad such a dumb slut was dead anyway and so forth. And that can you imagine like being her family in deep grief and reading this stuff? So that was how he started out. And then he met other like-minded trolls and then they almost form syndicates over time. And then they do things that are more and more and more extreme. So he is classic in the sense that he fits really well within the research, the academic research about trolling. So trolling predator trolling, um, it, it's correlated with what they call the dark tetrad of personality traits. So it's Machiavellianism, narcissism, psychopathy and sadism. But sadism is the strongest link, which is really interesting because what it means is they are setting out to hurt you and they take pleasure from it. And that was 100% him. So sometimes you see someone like Lee Sales saying, they don't know how much they're hurting us. They do. They absolutely do. And they articulated this to me over and over again and they enjoy it. So that's really important. 
The you draw uh, that distinction between cognitive empathy and affective empathy. Yeah, so that's so, the so other... They, they, under, they understand emotions, uh, but they don't care. Yeah, so it's fascinating, right? So there's this really interesting piece of research done by Evita March and her team at Federation University here in Australia. And what that research shows is that they have cognitive empathy but not effective empathy. So cognitive empathy is that they understand how to hurt you. They understand how to push your buttons and this is a 100% mark. He knows what is going to do you damage. But they don't feel for you. They don't care that they're hurting for you. They don't care that they're hurting you in the way that most of us would, that they're damaging you. So they're not you know, feeling those emotions you feel when you, someone is upset or you upset someone. And you talk about uh, Mark having a view that white men are the victims in the in the world. Uh, is that is that common across others? Yeah, I mean, so this is what is running through a lot of these really extreme groups online. So you see this a lot in the incel groups, the involuntary celibate groups. You see this, you know, they're, they're woman-hating groups that believe you can use violence to get sex from women. You know, that's a really angry, dangerous group. You see it in alt-right groups as well. There's a lot of crossover, a lot of misogyny there. And there's a lot of crossover with the predator trolling syndicates as well. And they tend to believe themselves marginalized and this is really hard like I grapple with this Andrew for ages because I'm basically like a right a left sorry I'm basically a left-wing feminist I'm Jewish you know I'm everything they hate I'm a journalist and so my set of beliefs has always been that you know these guys are the top of the food chain these are white guys but they don't see themselves this way they see themselves as fundamentally disempowered and actually, I came to understand that a lot of them were. A lot of these guys were brought up in really difficult households, you know, neglected as children, lots of abuse, lots of violence, and completely unparented. So economically and socially disadvantaged, and then left alone online, completely unparented. So they would be sitting on the internet from the age of 10 to 16 and kind of get radicalised into these ideas so into extreme hatred extreme hatred of women extreme hatred of other races extreme hatred of lgbtiq people like on and on and on and so they get spat out as trolls later at first you know it was actually a moment where i had to go wait a minute (laughs) and particularly meep sheep who's one of the trolls i i became really good friends with him which people find hard to understand but he described this what he called emotional poverty to me in amazing detail and that the cohorts of men in this group are in that category. So that was kind of helpful to understand but also hard to wrap your head around if, if you feel that you are in a marginalised group yourself. One of the fascinating parts in the book is where you extend sympathy to trolls. In one case, you were talking with a troll through his withdrawal from Xanax. Tell me about that. I think there was XT that was withdrawing from Xanax. Yeah, look, Andrew, I think that there's a lot of things fundamentally wrong with the media and we go into storytelling a lot of the time in a really adversarial way 
And you can see if you look at the public discourse more widely, it's so polarised. I mean, you're a politician, you know this. You see, this, We're seeing this online, we're seeing this inside parliaments, we're seeing it in the media. Everything's a soundbite or a 180-character you know, tweet. My deep sense about this is that we have to come to these things with our greatest humanity. And so... I just decided that I was going to be fair and accurate and hold these guys to account, but I was also going to use radical empathy. I didn't know that's what it was called. Once my book came out, people started writing to me saying, oh, my God, you're using radical empathy. And I was like, what's that? And I Googled it, you know. And it doesn't mean that you're giving out free hugs to people. It means that you're just going in with your whole self and really listening and really trying to understand, like, why is this person doing this? Where did they come from? How did this happen? Instead of being really adversarial and keeping the conversation at a much shallower level. So, yes, I did go in in a really empathetic way and it's not necessarily something I recommend doing it to that level because it was very damaging personally like you can see as you read the book my mental health is kind of unraveling and I'm drinking a lot by the end of it I had really full-on PTSD so I paid a price for that but um the thing I would say is we wouldn't have the book we had we'd never get the insights we had because in the end those guys trusted me and then they would tell me stuff they'd never told anybody else like they would be telling me about their childhoods and what actually happened I mean I remember Mark one day telling me about his dog and that sounds so simple right but don't forget he's a psychopath that kills people and he had told me that he knows how to fuck up my life and he will if if I don't do what he wants so I had a really scary relationship with him in a way and I felt at various times like I couldn't get out of that web but then like suddenly you'd get this whole thing about do you want to see a picture of my dog he's my dog I took my dog and I you know <laughs> and you'd see these glimpses of humanity and it's very powerful actually and I mean I guess in the end I thought you know these are members of our community these are little boys that we should have looked after and this would never have happened. They would not be the Christchurch killer killing us all these years later. We would have a different outcome. So, yeah, I know some people think it's mad. My friend told me at one point, my really good friend Sue said, you've got Stockholm Syndrome, you know, uh, and I had to really sit with that and think, do I? And I actually asked Meep Sheep do I have Stockholm Syndrome, you know? And he said, no, because you're always holding me to account. You're never letting me off the hook. So that was interesting. It's interesting to think that there's a much more compassionate way we can do journalism. So one of the uh, implications of what you talk about in terms of trolling is that it can really uh, change the willingness of uh, powerful women to get involved in public life. Um, I've uh, interviewed on the podcast Taylor Harris, who was uh, uh, infamously trolled after the picture of her kicking uh, an AFL ball went uh, went, went up on the uh, on the internet. Um, you've written about Mariam Vazada and uh, the impact on her. Uh, how much do you see trolling as as having an effect on talented women's willingness to to be out there in public? Listen, I think I would step away from this discussion if it wasn't for this issue that you're raising right now, like, because I'm tired and I'm still recovering from PTSD. But 
Last year, I spoke at the Commonwealth Women's Parliamentarians in Adelaide and I was presenting about this stuff we're talking about today. And I thought I knew what female politicians were experiencing. I thought I understood the level of this. You know, in my talk, for example, I discussed Jo Cox, the female politician who was shot in the UK, and I brought forward another... uh, other examples, Australian examples, so Rachel Power who recently quit in Tasmania, a local politician because of extreme trolling. So this was all woven into my talk and then after the talk, those women there brought every book I brought with me in my suitcase but also a lot of them were crying and they were telling these stories of extreme cyber hate. Like one of the women told me about having a fixated person I won't tell you which politician, but she had someone clearly fixated on her in real life. The threats were coming online and I said, please go to the police. Like, Joe Cox was shot in these circumstances. You know, rape threats against their little children, having to move house, being scared to go to the office. Like, a lot of these female politicians, and some of them are my friends, you know, who've come to me since and rang me. Sometimes I get phone calls out of the blue from politicians I've never met before telling me about this. But it's so extreme and it really is a democratic threat. It's stopping these women being able to do their jobs and also their staffers as well are copying all this stuff that's coming into the office. So the way men and women get trolled is different and so... Men tend to get more economic threats and so forth. They get trolled about ethnicity and uh, politics. Women get rape threats really violent and it's more sustained and more extreme. So it's beheaded women in their inboxes and so forth. This is what's happening to our female politicians. And if you think that these guys often operate in syndicates it's not one or two threats it's masses and masses and masses so you know we saw Sarah Hansen Young had that man that turned out to be a New South Wales police officer threatening rape and death to her and her child these are not conditions which we should put people in when they're trying to do their jobs this is actually a really substantial OHS issue and there are some high level reports coming out of Europe about this, like basically positioning this as a democratic threat. Because if you have women that can't do their jobs, it's really frightening. Like our elected officials are in some cases resigning because of this. So the person that we've chosen to be our member can't be. I just find that actually quite terrifying. And then if you couple that with people like Taylor So all these sports people write to me, women, sports administrators, sports journalists, athletes. This is happening to high-profile journalists and then lots of ordinary people. It's a lot. It's really huge. So it's something like 1.3 million Australians we found in our Australia Institute polling that are subject to extreme cyber hate and 8.8 million Australians just garden variety trolling. Yes, you say that uh, about 40% of Australians have experienced online harassment and about a quarter of women have received unwanted sexual messages. Yeah. Uh, so that's, it's ubiquitous at, uh, at, at the low level and, uh, and atrocious at the high, at higher level. And it's 44% women, 
34% men. So it looks kind of similar on paper, but the nature of it is very different. So like I said, it's much more extreme against women and it's much more violent, threatening and sustained. So it's not the same kettle of fish at all. It's not to say men don't get horrendously trolled and they don't have severe consequences, they do. But yeah, as a cohort, women are much worse off and then there's a lot of intersectionality. So if you're a woman and you're gay and you're a person of colour, like, good luck because the trolls minority stack. So they stack your minorities against you so you're much more likely to be a target because they're looking for your weakest point. That's what Mark said to me at one point. It was really useful, actually. He said to me, it's business, basically. Like, I'm just trying to find what I think is your weakest point. So if it's that you're a lesbian, that'll be the thing. If it's that you're fat, that'll be the thing, you know. If you're Jewish, it'll be that you're Jewish. So he is picking the most horrendous thing all the time. Yes, I'm aware that uh, the sort of attacks that, uh, that that I get of uh, being, which typically fall in the category of being ugly or stupid, uh, are just trivial compared to what my female colleagues get. Uh, you know, I only have to look at the the responses to their Twitter feeds to uh, to, to realise how fortunate I am as a as a as a white bloke in politics. Uh, the the degree of the of, of the abuse is just uh, just so much worse. And I guess what I was trying to do all throughout my book is show the real life harm because we've got this idea that what happens online is virtual, that it's happening in some fairyland. But in fact, what my book shows is it's linked to terrorism, it's linked to murder, it's linked to domestic abuse, it's linked to stalking, it's linked to incitement to suicide. And as we've recently seen on Four Corners, it's linked to rapes and things. So we need to actually understand that it doesn't stay online. And when you say to someone, just get off the internet, stop looking, you're effectively victim blaming. And that kind of don't feed the trolls, Monica, is actually doing the job of the troll for them. So if you say to someone, don't feed the trolls, you're doing what the troll's doing, which is trying to silence the victim. It's a really unfair thing to put upon the victim in fact we need to be asking different questions like why are the perpetrators doing this why are the social media companies a hotbed for all kinds of extremism and hatred and governments aren't monitoring them and they aren't making legislation so that we're safe and the police as well have a huge role to play in this mostly they are untrained they don't understand the legislation they don't understand how serious it is they don't know how to investigate it you know like it was interesting after the Christchurch killings like there's this classic classic thing that happens when you get these guys that are radicalized online and they do a high school shooting or they do a massacre like Christchurch, the police always come out and kind of say, we had no idea. But actually, like, those guys, they all say what they're going to do online. Like, you can find it on just chat boards and stuff. I'm not a techie, like I said. I can find all the Christchurch killer stuff like, really easily. It was all on Twitter and on NChan, I think it was. Anyway, I read on one of those platforms all his posts. He said what he was going to do, but they're not looking in the right places. And I think there's racism in there too. I think if these were brown Muslim guys, they would be looking. You talk also about the uh, the impact of uh, trolling on female journalists. Yeah. Uh, and the problem that, as you point out, Facebook considers journalists to be public figures uh, who, in your words, are, are subjected to uh, Salem witch trials. Yeah. Uh, how... 
uh, what, what impact do you think this is having on uh, the willingness of, of talented young women to enter your profession? I think Facebook has slightly changed that now because so many female journalists were coming to them and they realised that men and women weren't operating in the same way because they weren't getting the same attacks. Look, it makes it very hard to do these jobs. Like if you look at the stuff that Lise Ailes gets, for example, it's absolutely brutal and relentless. And once they find your home address and things like that and they're doxing you so they're putting all your details online, it, it's very hard to go to work and not be scared of getting shot or stalked or, you know, as Van Batten was, punched in the street. I think it is having a huge impact and media organisations haven't even started to grapple with this. Like, I don't understand why they aren't implementing social media self-defence for everybody. Like, they require you to be online for your work, but they don't give you any training or protection. It's incredible to me. Like... If you look at the social media policies of most media organisations, it's about protecting the organisation from risk. There's nothing about protecting the staff member from risk, which I find really interesting because every legal expert I've spoken to about this has said to me, this is going to unfold where someone like myself who suffered trauma in my workplace is going to sue an organisation like the ABC for trauma and win because they haven't provided a safe workplace. So when Taylor Harris came out after her trolling and said, I'm unsafe at work, I'm being sexually harassed at work, she's right. That's exactly what it is. It's an oh issue for anyone who has to be online for work, which is most of us, right? Like often when I speak about this in public, I say put, off your ha- put up your hand if you can get off the internet. Nobody can mm, because... Mm. Our lives are so intertwined with the internet, you know? Like the United Nations just recognise internet access as a human right. So we can't really live without it for economic, social, all the reasons you talk about in your book, Reconnected. We need the internet. We've seen this even more during coronavirus. So stop telling victims to get off the internet and start actually making this safe for people, like through workplace training, through legislative means, through police training, all the things. And also, you know, all of us need to be nicer online. I always say there's a troll in all of us. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean though? Like you can, you can kind of be more aggressive online than you would offline sometimes. Mm, mm. And so I think we all need to try to, bring social norms to the internet. Yes, there's a classic uh, university experiment where they get students in pairs just to communicate uh, by firing emails forwards and backwards and a startlingly high share of the conversations end up being abusive or sexual very, very quickly Yeah. Uh, from students who would never engage in abusive or, or uh, aggravatingly sexual conversation with uh, a fellow student if they'd just been placed in a room talking with them face to face. Yes, and you see this on dating apps too, which I was talking to the Fairfax media about actually after the, all that Four Corners stuff. There's something that is useful for people to know about, which is called the online disinhibition effect. So what it means is that when you are talking to someone or interacting online, you don't have the social contract that you do when you're face-to-face. Like we're face-to-face now, I see you smiling, I see you waving your hands. We've got this social contract, but online that's missing. So it gets gamified, the interactions. You Mm. don't really feel like it's real and you can't see their facial expressions where they're smiling. So things 
do get more aggressive much more quickly. And so it's about how do we bring our humanity to these interactions we have online. And I'm really careful now. Like, I, you know, sometimes you see a post and you want to get in there and say, that's crap or whatever. I actually think, would I say that to her if I was face-to-face in the supermarket? I probably wouldn't. So I'm not going to say it now. Mm. And I've actually started imposing my social norms on people online to see what happens. Uh, so not that long ago, this guy was trolling my friend Lisa Miller, who's on News 24, and he was saying, you know, you stupid whore or something. Why are you talking shit for hours? And it was awful. You know, she's a really beautiful, hardworking, intelligent person. I just wrote back to him and said, hey, Peter, you know, Lisa's a wonderful, hardworking person. And I wonder if he saw her in the supermarket, would you say that in real life? And he stopped it because I was bringing social norms to bear like mm. you would if your mm. mate was drunk at a party being an idiot. You'd say, come on, mate, let's go. Stop being such a twit. That's kind of what we've all got to do online a bit, I think. So, to what extent is a uh, bystanders able to, uh, to to step in, step in, and and how should bystanders assist when you've got something like uh, the the abuse that was being directed towards you or towards uh, Lisa Miller, Lee Sales, Taylor Harris? What should the rest of us do? So, thank you for asking this question because it's actually something I've been writing about recently for the ABC, and it is the most powerful technique I've come across aside from those big structural things I was talking about. So what happens on social media when someone attacked it, is attacked is they feel small and like they're being cornered and helpless and that is what the trolls want. What the trolls do not want is that you have a big powerful crew behind you and they show you floods of support and that in fact brings new followers to you and new supporters for your work. So what I started doing is like when Beverly Wang was attacked, she's an ABC presenter, when Marion Vesada was attacked and various other people I see, I get right in there and I give these bystander instructions. So I first of all explain the problem. Like so I would say, hi there, Andrew is getting really badly trolled because he is expressing anti-racism views. So explain the problem. And then I tell people to get right in there with messages of support. So these can be (laughs) direct messages of support or you can just retweet the person or repost their stuff. So you are amplifying their voice and you're trying to bring them new followers. Mm. And then this is a bit controversial, but if people feel safe, they can use corrective speech back to the trolls. So no aggression, but just what I did with that guy, Peter. So just saying, you're wrong about this for this reason. Um, No bitterness or anger. And it's incredible what happens. It's amazing because it just blows up and then you get tons and tons of support. The victim doesn't feel alone. And the troll is actually defeated most of the time because that's the exact opposite of what they wanted. They're not trying to get you new followers. <laughs> you know, they're trying to make you weak and alone. Mm. Um, so it's actually the most incredibly powerful technique I've ever come across. It's, you know, it's like what we tell kids to do in the schoolyard, but it's online. You have a story in uh, Troll Hunting where uh, a, a woman by the name of Kylie is uh, uh, being 
uh, attacked and, and I think told to uh, to take her and take her own life, uh, and then suddenly bystanders step in. Uh, it's amazing that story, isn't it? So these were two rival trolling groups. Actually, one of them was the trolling group Anonymous, which people may have heard of. And this young girl looked like she was going to take her own life, and it looks fairly serious to me. And then, yeah, Anonymous stepped in and really went for her trolls, really went for her bullies. It was, you know, real digilantism, they call it. But it stopped it. Yeah, they stopped it. I mean, that was a lot more violent and aggressive, the threats back, than I would like. But it was an interesting way that you can be an – it showed me that you can really be an activist online. And I think they saved her life, actually. Ginger, I wanted to ask you about the practice of – targets of trolls going after the trolls themselves. Uh, last month, Alex Turnbull tweeted, I really do wonder why people keep coming at me with anonymous accounts when I ID people faster than Rain Man solves a Rubik's Cube. I don't want to ask you to comment specifically on Alex's comment there, but what's your view on this kind of approach for people who are the victims of anonymous trolling? There's something I'd like to say first about it before I answer it, which is the actual problem here is that society's structures to keep us safe don't exist there, so people feel alone. So they feel that they can't get help anywhere, and that has been largely the case. So then they're not left with many options, they're cornered, and often what happens is they do turn to this vigilantism and they're trying to fight back. And to me, it just becomes like the Old Testament. It's like an eye for an eye, you know. And it's devolving society, basically. <laughs> you know, do we really want, you know, I kill your brother, you kill my sister? That's not really the kind of society I want to live in. And so the way I see that behaviour, I see that not just in Alex Turnbull, there's lots of public figures that do that I understand they are hurting they are being attacked it's awful being a victim and it's terrifying but if you let the trolls turn you into a sadist and you are taking pleasure in getting them fired and doing them harm what's the difference between you and are you helping strengthen civil society or are you helping it devolve and I would argue you're helping it devolve the thing we need to fight for here is a different kind of society, a society where the platforms are held to account, where they have a duty of care to keep us safe, where there are huge fines like there are in Germany if they don't take cyber hate down very fast, that there's a penalty for them. Because at the moment what's happening is it's like having any other company that puts a product on the market that is unsafe. We would never allow that to happen. You know, it's like they are big tobacco and big sugar before they were regulated. This is what they are. You know, in my book, Josh Bornstein, the lawyer from Morris Blackburn, who's been a cyber hate target himself, he was the cyber hate target actually of a terrorist troll who's now in jail in the States. But he talks a lot about this and says, you know, this is like what Teddy Roosevelt did in the 1800s in America. He broke up big oil companies. He broke up these companies that had too much power. So this is what we need to do here we need to actually look at who is responsible and you know big tech has largely got away scot-free and we are all coming to grave harm because of it so I think those questions are more the questions I would like answered like I know uh, the there's a new online safety act in the works which I have uh, 
given some advice on and so forth. That's the stuff we need to be doing. That's the stuff I'm excited about in this space. And I'm also excited that the public now cares about it. Because, you know, like when I started writing about this, people were like, what is it? You know, that's not the conversation now. Now we're seeing big high-profile stories on Four Corners. We're seeing big high-profile stories in all the papers. It's in opinion pieces. The conversation has shifted. And thank God because people are dying, you know. Like the Christchurch massacre happened six weeks after my book came out and I was flown to New Zealand to explain it because they were so shocked. But actually, like... It's all there. It's all on the internet. So I think we're paying more attention as a community now and I think we're starting to see action because we're starting to see the real harms of this, you know? You quote uh, Julian Mangrant, the safety commissioner, as talking about the importance of safety by design. Uh, And one of the examples you give is uh, Facebook Live, uh, which is uh, uh, not... Uh, safety safety by design, at least in, in being open to all users. Yes. I think we need to stop expecting the tech companies to look after us. You know, they have said since 2006 that they care about safety. Well, they clearly don't, you know. Facebook was just implicated in a genocide in Myanmar. They're not going to keep us safe. They're not going to design things safely. So what Julie says in the book is she talks about the launch of Facebook Live and the thing is there were other products on the market that were so similar and people were being raped and murdered on those platforms live. But Facebook didn't do anything about that. They just launched a product that was the same because they didn't want to miss out on market share. So these companies are not going to do anything that interrupts their profit motive. That is very clear. So yes, Julie is, she's much less hardline than me. (laughs) She's kind of working with the companies and she's trying to get them to implement safety by design uh, principles voluntarily. I'm not that sympathetic to them. I don't see that they are coming to the party and they're certainly not coming to the party quick enough. So in my view, that should be mandatory. Like you can't put a car on our roads without seatbelts. Why can you put Facebook Live out to market when, you know, it's very clear that it's going to damage people? Also, that video was up for 29 minutes before Facebook took it down. So their moderation processes don't work either. They're all outsourced to the Philippines and 18-year-olds who are fairly untrained, don't have the mental health support, don't have the cultural context. They're the ones looking at the reports, you know, and they're not paid to help us. They're paid to get through the reports. So that's really problematic too, I reckon. And The Economist recently had a piece where it was saying that one of the problems with uh, excessive moderation can be uh, that people who are posting videos of human rights abuses find that evidence taken down uh, and, uh, again, the, the inability to distinguish between the two. Uh, I, I mean, that that's right. And this is incredible that if you are breastfeeding your baby and you put a f- picture on Facebook, that will get taken down because God knows who's moderating it in what country and what their values are. But if you have a Christchurch massacre, that doesn't get taken down. I mean, it's kind of amazing. It's a completely broken system. And the thing is, they make billions of dollars from our data. They've got the best engineers in the world working for them. If they wanted to fix this stuff, they would. They don't, clearly, because it costs money. (laughs) 
you know, I mean, I've had meetings with those people and I, I saw them, I saw all the representatives of these companies giving evidence to the Senate hearings in 2018 and it was gobsmacking, Andrew. Like I was sitting there watching the elected representatives of this country asking these people questions and they wouldn't answer them. They didn't give them a straight answer once about how much resourcing do you give this? What are the kinds of complaints you're getting? What numbers are you getting? How are they triaged? Like none of the above. And I just found it amazing. Like, okay, so you are private companies that think you're above Australian law, think you are unanswerable to our parliament. Like, sorry, that's really rotten, you know? What is, what is it in Shakespeare? Something rotten in the state of Denmark? Like it's just, it is bad. That's decay. <laughs> it's interesting too, you talk about the role of defamation laws and trolls being more averse to, uh, to, to doing their, uh, their evil work in Britain, which has tougher defamation laws than uh, the United States. As I was reading that, I was thinking about a comment that uh, the actress Sheridan Harbridge made to me and I interviewed her for the podcast where she was saying that she felt Australia's tougher defamation laws made it harder for the Me Too movement to, yeah. uh, to take, uh, take off in Australia. Um, so these things can be double-edged swords. They're very complicated, you know, and trolls will always come back to you and say free speech, free speech. But the thing is... They are the greatest impediment to free speech I've ever come across. They're actually stopping all kinds of marginalised people speaking out. So these are complex balances we have to find, but we do it offline so we can do it online. And we need to be really clear that the idea that the fathers of the internet have, and they were all men, that it would be this great, egalitarian equaliser and we'd all be able to share our knowledge and our voices like that just hasn't come to pass and in fact it has amplified the worst instincts of humanity and so if we want to retain the internet's functionality we have to kind of act urgently to save it like I don't want my kids killed because of the internet I want them to do what you suggest people do in your book which is cyber reconnecting you know I want them to find powerful community and be able to connect and share knowledge I don't want them bullied to death stalked raped and so forth because they're on a dating app like it's bananas (laughs) and there's a real unwillingness among our leaders to actually take it that step further like they're always suggesting voluntary codes and so forth I'm like legislate I don't think you can legislate your way out of this but I think you do need some way that they are made accountable Ginger let me uh, wrap up with a handful of questions I ask all of my uh, my interviewees <laughs> oh no, I'm uh, scared <laughs> what advice would you give to your teenage self I think I wish I was kinder to myself at that age. So I think I'd probably talk about difference and accepting difference and feeling strong in the world. I always say to my kids, you need to be brave, smart and kind and 
to focus on the power of community and not what your bitchy little girlfriends are saying behind the toilet toilet door. You know, like there's a lot more to life than what you see at that age. You're so myopic. And in fact, you know, it's really urgent that we bring up kind young people. When are you most happy? I'm probably most happy reading a book in bed or just outdoors. I went on an orchid walk on Black Mountain recently and it was so beautiful. We've got more orchids on Black Mountain, just on Black Mountain, than they do in the whole of the United Kingdom. So, (laughs) you know, we we just have this magical outdoor door world in Australia in particular and especially during those really stressful times like grave illness or you know during COVID it's just amazing to be outdoors. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? I think what you talk about in your book again just to go back to it because I've just read it it's just community so it's about gathering powerful souls around you who have your best interest at heart and the community's best interest at heart and supporting one another. And, you know, that's been such a fundamental source of power and love to me in the past three or four years because they've been a really hard few years, you know. Um, I think what do I believe – I really want to answer this question about because there's a lot of things that changed – You know, in the course of writing my book, my mind changed about a lot of things. And when I was on the BBC talking about my book, she said, have you lost your faith in humanity? And I said, no, I've lost my faith in journalism because we are not even listening. We're not finding the right people. We're not even asking the right questions. So it's becoming harder and harder for me to stay in an industry that I feel is fundamentally unethical. Do you have any guilty pleasures? And and if nothing springs off the top of your head, uh, this could be an excuse to talk about the uh, tattoo you allowed yourself <laughs> to get at the end of the book project. Um, I have a lot of guilty pleasures. I probably drink too much and I love... I love cooking for friends and things like that and I will often go out dancing till six in the morning uh, so even though I'm in my early 40s so I, I can be quite wild. Uh, the tattoo was the weirdest thing. I have a tattoo all down my side and actually I never planned to tell my mother about it except it ended up on the front of the Canberra Times I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I woke up so damaged I was in this period where I was so damaged I really full-on PTSD from all the violence and stuff that happened in the book because you know people were getting shot in real time and it's just a really damaging experience and I was doing therapy for it I never wanted a tattoo in my entire life and I woke up this one morning like just absolutely certain I just wanted a tattoo it's down my side where no one can see it but it's huge and I just went and got it I just paid this great guy now up under a thousand dollars and away he went he did it and uh, my friend works for the Canberra Times and she saw I posted about it and I don't even remember this because I think I was so off my face because of the pain um she came and interviewed me while I was on the tattoo chair and took photos and then you know there's this beautiful article in the Canberra Times my mum rang my sister absolutely livid like why is she half naked <laughs> in the front of the paper and you know, but anyway, so everyone knows now. But yeah, it was a way to externalize the pain of the book and put it on my outside, not my inside. And it felt really good. And it was actually really healing. 
Yeah. Well, and you're uh, going down the same road as Taylor Harris, which uh, which can't be a bad thing. <laughs> no, and you know what? For a young woman in her position, far out, she handled that abuse with such strength and grace. I take my hat off to her. Taylor's amazing. Uh, finally, Ginger, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I don't know about living an ethical life, but the person who has had the biggest impact on me as a person is my late dad. He grew up in a very poor neighbourhood in Melbourne. He grew up partly in housing commission. There were no books in his house. And he became an Australian diplomat and he always talked about the importance of family, which he didn't really have experience of so much himself. He built that with my mum and he always made us eat together around the table and he was always on and on and on about education and I never understood it. I never understood till I was much older that he was the first person to go to Melbourne University, you know, and the fact that Gough Whitlam allowed him to have a free education, like... I'm so grateful for that. So those are the kinds of things and the values I took with me that we had to talk around the table. And we were always talking about politics and issues and there was always a lot of discussion around our table. So that's the stuff I've kind of taken with me. Although I think he probably would think that my social justice bent is a bit softy, like a bit <laughs> a bit too kind of gooey and open-hearted. But, yeah, a lot of the values... Um, around hard work and things like that because I was never very bright at school. I never really did that well. You know, that stuff about working hard, that all came from him. Ginger Gorman's book is Troll Hunting, Inside the World of Online Hate and Its Human Fallout. Ginger, thanks for appearing on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks for the amazing questions, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion... I reckon you'll love past interviews with Ellen Broad, Steve Bidolf and Taylor Harris. As you heard Ginger mention, Nick Terrell and I have a new book out titled Reconnected, a Community Builder's Handbook. We appreciate getting feedback on this podcast, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.